This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. What are we doing with our kids? And are we actually setting them up for success? When you make the argument immediately that you're just trying to protect them, who really are you trying to protect? Is it really your child that you're so worried about that you would, you know, write all of their college essays? Is it your child that you're trying to protect when you do that? Or is it you? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Conflict in your life. How do you handle it? Are you one that uh, that can actually sit back, as our last guest was talking to us about, and and allow the difference of opinion in? Can you suspend your need to react, right? Can you attend to what they're saying and remain influenceable, remain open to what another person is saying? Do you listen? Do you actually listen to what they are saying? And uh, on top of all of it, do you also voice? I mean, a lot of people could sit and listen and be, you know, quiet and passive, and but do you also voice your opinion as well? Do you have, a, do you have the ability to take what they've said and bridge your opinion into theirs. I call it build onto their opinion because what I believe is when we listen to people really attentively, 80% of what they are saying, you will probably agree with. So as as a mediator, I would sit down with couples fighting about the biggest issues of their marriage and they they're they're in a pretty intense argument and as we start to kind of, you know, slice down the argument into its its more finite points, what you will find out, find out when you get to the more finite points, we have about 80% agreement. There's a lot of stuff we agree on in the argument, but we spend about 100% of our time where we disagree. So do you have the ability to suspend and to make sure that you're not reacting to uh, your emotion inside, this fight or flight kicking in you, in your heart and in your mind that's making your heart race and uh, you want to stop them from saying what they're saying because if I can just stop you from saying it, I guess that would make it not happen or that would make you not think that way. But wouldn't it make more sense to allow some of these ideas out into the dialogue, especially if it's somebody I love and care about and want to influence wouldn't it make more sense to actually understand where they're coming from, right? So that I can understand why they're thinking this way, why they're doing what they're doing, why they're, you know, making or taking this position about something that I hold near and dear to my heart. There is, there's power, folks, in this ability to do it. And I, the funny thing is we expect our, our leaders to be able to do it politically, and yet I believe most of us can't do it privately, most of us struggle to do that personally. Over and over, in fact, tonight as well, I will sit in a room tonight with probably 10 to 12 people, six couples who really have a hard time talking with each other. And and we, we've trained them, we've taught them the skills, and tonight they come and they just practice it. And as they practice it, it is amazing how how hard it is to actually, you know, hold back those horses that want to just run with this issue and stop their partner from saying what they feel or what they think. 
and or in misinterpreting it and taking it to the worst possible level I could take it. Those are unique skills, right? Notice I've talked about suspending, attending, listening, voicing, all very important points, building onto what people are saying, all important communication skills. Do you possess them? Because if you don't, can I just challenge you to go start learning how to do it? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. We talk about positive mental attitude. We talk about having an open mind and uh, and how those things make a difference. One of the things I think that makes the biggest difference is it's not going to be um, a cliche. It's And there's a ton of research behind all of this stuff. But the real reason I like being more positive is because I just feel better. Now, some people are like, well, yeah, but sure, you're going to be taken advantage of more. Hey, bring it on. (laughs) Whatever. If you're going to try to take advantage of me because I'm positive, fine. Because when you do, guess what I'll say? Meh. Oh, well, you know, did what I could. And I'll just move on faster by having a little bit uh, more optimism in me, a little bit uh, more positive mental attitude. I'm not saying I should stick my head in the sand and pretend like there aren't any facts in this world, because there are. But I also don't think I need to to just be negative. It's never served me. Um, I sit with people every day in my coaching practice that really are just negative. And it's it, remember, the negativity, I wouldn't argue it's a strength because we, we already know some data in, in the Happiness Advantage, uh, a book that's out talking about the, the power of happiness, um, is one of the data points shows that the most, the most um, likely group of, of professionals that are most likely to uh, go commit suicide and are the most miserable would be attorneys. And it's not because they're bad people. It's because their profession demands that they always look for the negative. So if you set your life up to constantly be gauging and trying to look for the negative, you will find an uglier life. Positivity is more about um, being able to see the, the rainbow, right? Being able to see the emergent property that comes out of the differences between tension and light. And our lives are all going to be filled with some form of tension, some some kind of uh, dark side and some positive side, some light side. And somewhere out of that comes a new reality. They call it an emergent property, right? It's something that didn't exist before. But sometimes you need the clouds and you need the storm and then you, and you need the rain and you need the sun. And when the three can combine, all this tension combines with light, it creates something that didn't exist before. But that light can't come if you don't let it in. If you're not looking for the rainbow, if you're not looking for the opportunity on the other side of the pain, then um, it can be there. How many times have you driven down the road with rainbow up there and you're not even noticing it? And some of us notice it and we're like, eh, well, it's not. It's, only, it's really only two hues. Hmm. Okay, I mean, it's nice, but whatever. We're actually like, we're not in awe of the fact that there is a rainbow. Yeah, it's just a rainbow. No, that means there's no more floods or whatever. So think about it. How effective are you at uh, not just protecting yourself from your cynicism? How effective are you at actually intentionally Letting the light in. 
everybody we want – I know. We don't want to be hurt. So it's very natural for us to to not want to be hurt so badly that we just can't find the joy. But man, what happens to us as human beings if we could actually search out the joy? And everybody – every one of us today, just today, don't, don't do anything else but just today, go try to find three blessings today, three signs that God is good, that life is good. Just find them. Look for them. And then every day just maybe try again tomorrow. Let's try, try, try to find three more. And then what's really fun is share those. Share those three joys, those three blessings. Share those and, and then just see what happens. A lot of us just don't dare reveal who we are because we're – I guess we're afraid that they'll reject me. They'll, they'll af- we're afraid that if they actually knew who I was, they wouldn't want me. They wouldn't like me. And so it creates bigger problems for us. We, we've been talking about on the show uh, with, about the impact of our exercise, and it's just a little tiny thing. You just need a little activity to start to make those chemicals flow. The same is true in our lives, in our relationships. If we could just be a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more real about what's going on, man, a lot of good stuff could, could, um, could be improved in our lives. One rule is simply be wholehearted. Uh, Brene Brown, a great uh, speaker and author, researcher on on vulnerability, talks about the fact that many of us just really aren't really – we're not wholehearted. We're not wholly in our relationships. We're not even wholly in our job. We're not fully in. And if you're not fully in, you can't derive any benefits of life. If you're not all the way in, then you're, you're only getting half as good as, as you could be at something. You're only offering half your talent, half – of your love, half of your understanding. And so how hearted are you is the question I ask. When we talk about being a wholehearted person, if you thought about your marriage, how wholehearted are you giving in your marriage? How wholeheartedly are you present in your marriage? Um, And Brene Brown has a great quote that says, we spend an enormous energy trying to dodge vulnerability when it would take far less effort to face it straight on. Are you so busy fighting and flighting in your relationships? Are you so uh, up and down? Are you so constantly wondering if you're going to be able to make it through this crazy difficult thing that that by being so constantly in and out and up and down and trying to avoid being hurt, are you actually just creating more pain and problems for yourself? So one of the suggestions might be burn your ships um, Cortez, I guess the the story goes when he came uh, to conquer and he arrived to conquer. He one of the, the things that he decided to do was to supposedly burn his ships and make it so the soldiers or his people, when they went off to fight, they weren't allowed to uh, ever come back to the ships because the ships would need to be rebuilt. Many would argue they probably didn't burn them, but he just made them unusable. <laughs> To uh, So it would take a lot of work to actually ever use the ship again. But uh, how are you in your relationships? Have you made it so that you aren't constantly reverting back to the idea that, hey, I'm just going to – I can always leave. Um, one of the signs of a, a relationship that's really gone sideways is we start to uh, you know search alternatives. We start to think about what we would do. Uh, or we start to look at other people. We start to look at other things. We start to 
you know, offload our attention and our focus to something else, to some other hobby or something else that actually starts to take the place of our relationship. So think about that. How are you at uh, being fully in in your relationship? And throughout this week, I'm going to continue to do little coaches' corners on other things we can do at, during the week of Valentine's, right, to make sure that we are connecting, to make sure that we are more wholeheartedly in our relationship, because that is one of the key goals of this show, is to help all of us be be the good in the world. And if we can, lift our game up uh, quite a bit in our relationships those in those people that are closest to us. So we'll continue the journey up next on the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. We are in a digital era. For information, we turn to Google. For communications, we turn to email. For friends, we turn to social media. Also, in this digital area era, we have internet trolls, and uh, you know, between Twitter feuds and Facebook rants, we seem we see that rudeness is on the rise. It seems to be the new normal. Is it possible that social media is actually make us making us? more rude toward one another. Are we becoming ruder? Well, who better to help us with that than somebody that's been researching the subject? Mariana Plata joins us. She's a licensed psychologist from Panama, currently finishing her master's degree in child and adolescent psychology. And she is also a play therapist in training for the from the Association for Play Therapy and mental health writer and a public speaker. Mariana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an important issue because I am sensing with in my own life, with my own clients, and with my kids, we are, it seems like, getting kind of more short with each other. We're, we're daring to say things we might not normally say. Are we becoming ruder? Well, I absolutely agree with you. And, I, and the, the reason why I decided to write this article was precisely the digital era. And the interesting thing that I came across with when I, when I started researching for this article, speaking to Danny Wallace, who wrote the book, F You Very Much, The Surprising Truth About Why People Are So Rude, is that it's actually due to the lack of eye contact, which it's not surprising to hear anonymity and what is allowed, to, what we're allowed to do in social media gives us kind of a carte blanche to say what we want, tweet what we want, and self-proclaim ourselves as experts sometimes. And that leads to, you know, more internet trolls and more rudeness spreading throughout social media and throughout the digital realm. Interesting. So it's the eye contact. It's the fact that I'm not looking in your eyes when I say this and seeing your reaction and feeling a little intimidation from that. Um, it's more, I, because I don't have that, I, I feel maybe more emboldened. Right. And I think it's, it's also due and connected to something that, that Danny writes about in his book is that it's also due to the fact that there's no one holding up that mirror and confronting our rudeness. Whereas if we're having personal interactions, let's say you're outside in a supermarket and someone cuts in line and, you know, the person, you're, you get upset 
and you confront that person and you can say, excuse me, I'm in line here first, and other people are witnessing that. So they're kind of being held more accountable for their actions. But that accountability for some people, for those Internet trolls, seems to just be something that they brush off and that they don't take into consideration and that they don't necessarily need to change their behavior. So whereas someone who has been rude without intention gets that kind of looking glass effect back to them and say, hey, you're being rude, might feel that shame or that guilt of making someone else feel worse. Internet trolls, on the contrary, get a sense of reward from doing that. So that's the whole reason why we advocate for a psychologist, and it's, and it's interesting to look at Internet trolls because they really are bullies, to look at it within that bully theory that if you don't, you know, bite that bait and you don't engage with them, you're not giving them what they want, and they will look for that somewhere else. Mm. So that engaging in those Internet discussions and those Twitter rants and Facebook rants and Twitter feuds actually give those internet trolls more power than they originally had. Okay. Talk to us. Explain uh, for those that that may not know, define what an internet troll is and and what techniques they use to get their bully messages out there. Right. So an internet troll is a person who is seeking for opportunities and spaces to spread rudeness and negativity and to make people feel bad. It's when you when you look at it this way and I and I show it to some people who get, you know, sometimes I either get patients or friends or family members who tell me about a Facebook rant that they got into. And when I explain it to them that way, they react with, well that's kind of sad that they, you know, they spent their entire day behind a computer or behind a screen or a tablet or a cell phone lurking and looking for opportunities to take advantage of those most vulnerable. But that, that's literally what they do. And it comes from a place of an emotional insecurity that they have. And when people engage with them, it kind of sends off the message, oh, people are paying attention to me, people are paying attention to what I, what I say, therefore what I'm saying is important. Mm. Therefore, I am important. So it really is a negative cycle that they engage in. And when you understand that they're engaging in this cycle from insecurity, you kind of look at it with a more objective kind of perspective. And it's not as subjective and as emotional as that person is trying to piss me off or make me feel bad or make me feel hurt or make me feel angry. But it talks more about them than it does about myself. Yeah. Is it because they're not, they're also, this isn't a debate. They're, they're just trying to make you mad. Their job is, I mean, their, their response is not one of construction and constructivism and healthy uh, conversation. It is a negative bullying Exactly. And that, there's actually a, a paper that was published in the Journal of Personality and Individual Differences that does that same clarification, internet trolls versus people who engage in a healthy debate. And I think the main difference is that internet trolls go with a fixed 
mindset of what they are, of the topic they're engaging in. And they're not going to change that. Whereas people who engage in debate have a much more flexible stance and are open to learning or changing or tweaking their their perspective or their paradigm or their perception of the topic that's being um that's in the table and the digital table so to speak yeah so you you found in in the research and in some of the things you've been looking at uh, that it's the lack of eye contact um, that that starts to maybe enable people that want to troll to kind of validate their own identity. They they then start to get feedback that hey this is working and it emboldens them. But so that then then it creates this kind of rudeness factor. But when one person's rude to another person, doesn't that doesn't that almost create like a contagion of rudeness? Absolutely, absolutely. Rudeness is contagious precisely because. And in, in the research that's been found, rudeness acts like a neurotoxin in our system. So a neurotoxin is exactly what it what it what it self explains. It's a toxic substance that affects our nervous system and affects our brain. And when it affects our brain, it affects our ability to think straight. It affects our memory. It affects our communication style. So it really is an epidemic. And the whole theory of holding back that looking glass, as I was mentioning earlier, prevents that cycle from carrying on. So if one person is rude, let's say I'm at a workplace and I have, I go in with a, with a pleasant perspective and I go in happy, uh, I've had a good day so far, and I receive a, a rude comment from a colleague or from my boss. If I don't confront that head-on, then I'm going to go and carry away that neurotoxin. I'm going to carry away that rudeness. Personally, I run away from confrontation. I get very, very nervous when someone is being rude to me, and I'm not sure how to confront it because I look at con- the word confrontation to, to me has a negative connotation. And it, in my head, until I started reading about this, it meant that I had to be equally aggressive. But in reality, that confrontation means explaining your point of view, explaining how that person made you feel, starting with an I statement. We're big fans of I statements because when we start with an you, when we start a conversation with you did this and you made me feel that way, the other person will be a lot more defensive. Whereas if you start with an I felt hurt when you did this or when you said this, it kind of disarms the other person. So starting with I statements where you explain how that other person made you feel and doing it in a respectful and assertive way. Because if we understand objectively that that person is coming from an aggressive point of view, if I add more aggression to that, then it will just become a never-ending storm. Yeah. Of rudeness and of negative negativity. So you kind of want to be mindful of what's your purpose in this discussion and and holding that mirror onto the, onto people and just being okay with the fact that some people might want to look at their reflection and some people might not want to look at their reflection. But that confrontation comes from a place of not keeping 
of trying to not keep that inside of you and not holding on that grudge or that rudeness so that it doesn't spread to your other you know, communities and relationships. Yeah, and I guess not react to it, not let it take over my emotion and, and use the I statement with the other to say, hey, you know, I, when you say it that way, I, I feel this and this and this. Or it, it, The power of this, I guess, is starting to get some of my thoughts out that's um, just trying to create, you know, you know, right. frenzy. And it says, and, and at the end says more about them than it does about you. Yeah. And I, I know that in paper, this sounds very easy, but in the moment you get carried away because of course they, I love the theory that Dr. Um, Daniel Spiegel, who's a, who's an eminence in the world of uh, interpersonal neurobiology explains that it, it kind of, awakens our reptile brain, which is our most instinctive part of our, you know, being. And in that moment, it's going to awaken that brain, but it, it's also not letting that reptile brain or that reptilian brain take control over you, but you take control over it. Yeah. So when we consciously say, okay, this person is being rude, when we stop for a minute, when we receive that rudeness and say, okay, this person is being rude, and it probably has something to do with something that happened to them, not something that I'm doing, then we can get into a healthy confrontation and assertive communication to kind of end that cycle. Yeah. Again, we're speaking with Mariana Plata, who is a licensed psychologist from Panama and is currently finishing her master's degree in child and adolescent clinical psychology. And she's helping us understand uh, and wrote a wonderful article on is social media making us ruder. She's talking about the fact that a lot of times when you're engaging somebody that's being really rude or mean online, they, they've got their own issues. They're, they've got problems that they they're just emboldened if you fight back with them and it might be better instead to recognize who they are don't take the bait don't think it's about you and instead see them for what they are is it is it better do you think in the end mariana to just ignore it or to confront it do we i mean to some degree we want to push back so that others are, I guess, protected as well, but it also doesn't seem to help sometimes to push back. Right, and that's a that's a great question, and I think it depends a lot on who is it coming from. Because if we have, let's say, a close friend, or even in our own romantic relationships with our partners, if there has been a consistent... Um, pattern of rudeness, which isn't typical or isn't ordinary, I think it's valuable to confront that and kind of clarify because this is a relationship that you want to keep in your life. Yeah. So um, I, I think in, you have to make a decision of kind of, is, it, is this worth it? Is it worth the fight? And, and also learn how to choose your battles because it's exhausting to have to educate everyone and to have to, nor is it people's responsibility to hold that looking glass all the time. So I think it's kind of a pick and choose situation. Um, if it's, if it's a relationship where, you know, you're going to have to continue seeing this person and you know that it isn't something ordinary and it isn't something normal. 
um, for this person to be reacting this way, then I think it's, it's healthy to have this conversation. But if it's, you know, uh, something that happens when you're driving, that someone cuts in line, or um, this type of scenarios, it, it really depends up to you if you want to um, point that out to people. Yeah. And well, I also yeah. think that there are certain situations, for example, if you're having a customer service, situation. For example, if you're going to a restaurant or you're going to the store or, you know, you are buying a product, I think it's also important to have these type of situations, this, these type of conversations, right? Because these are the people that will continue to have relationships with other people and they might not be aware that what they're doing is, is being rude. And if they react defensively at the first sign of you trying to open those conversations, then I would say just let it go and understand that it has something to do with them and, again, not something to do with you. Yeah. No, I think that's such great advice. Mariana, thank you for your insight and your time and, uh, and just your willingness to help us understand this, this uh, rude or, uh, you know, less than ideal kind of world we're now living in. Uh, it really, I think, helps all of us. Again, Mariana Plata is a licensed psychologist from Panama, and uh, you can read more on psychology today um, about, uh, about this uh, problem we're having with social media and ruder people. We will continue the journey, folks, doing what we can to help create a healthier, happier life for all of us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about as a coach, but uh, one that has been weighing on my mind lately is uh, just how do we how do we take our marriages and make them happy? We live in this day and age where everyone's seeking happiness and supposedly We've never been healthier. We've never been uh, wealthier as a people. We've never had more opportunities, more information, more technology, as we talked about uh, in the last segment. And yet, do you feel happier as a couple? Um, Interestingly, there's a lot of research going on today, too, about happiness. It's this uh, positive psychology movement. And uh, in that research, what they've done is instead of focusing so much on what makes people unhappy, the latest movement in positive psychology is to identify what do happy people do that the rest of us aren't doing. And especially today, we could talk about what are the happy couples doing in life that the rest of us could start practicing. So I wanted to run through a few of those ideas, hopefully give you a little spark, something that you could go home and, and do today in your relationship. One thing is they show gratitude to each other daily. Research shows that gratitude helps people feel more positive emotions, relish good experiences, improves their health, deals with adversity, and helps them build strong relationships. Just a simple word of gratitude every day. Um, Gratitude, by the way, is derived from the Latin word gratia, which means grace or graciousness or gratefulness. And so do you show gratitude daily? Do you actually say thank you for the little things that your partner does for you? Do you notice the things in the world and and show gratitude for what you've been given? Simply put, do you notice today things that matter? Uh, I was speaking to a, a client recently that is 
that feels really depressed and um the world is just kind of closing in on her and 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 beating her up quite honestly and what happens is then you start getting into these defensive mechanisms these defensive routines where you just have to protect yourself and one of the most common defensive mechanisms is what's called negative interpretation where you start seeing negativity everywhere in the world uh, the story I always tell is if you were if you were bit by a rattlesnake, let's say, or a snake, any snake in your garden, when you go to the garden every time, your body and mind are going to try to protect you. And as they try to protect you, they're going to think of everything as a snake. So when you see the hose of, uh, in the grass around the garden, you will assume it's a snake. When you see the... Um, when you see the rake, you know, in the grass, you will think of it as a snake and your body and mind start to think of everything as the negative thing. And that same thing happens in our lives. In our marriages, we start to become negative interpreters where, you know, why didn't your wife, you know, pour you a, a bowl or make you a bowl of ice cream? Why She made the kids a bowl of ice cream, but she didn't get you one. And then we immediately turn that into a negative interpretation. Well, because she doesn't even care. She, I mean, she got herself ice cream and the kids ice cream, and and then we go down the we go down what I call the low road. When in reality, it might just be that you're out of ice cream, <laughs> and she didn't get a bowl of ice cream either, and just the kids got the ice cream because those are the ones that were complaining about it. And so, negative interpreting. So the way we fix that is we just force ourselves in a way to start to see the good every day. So here's an assignment. By the way, it's the assignment we gave this uh, young woman who was falling into depression and struggling. And it was simply to, I, I wanted her to identify three, you know, uh, three moments in the day, every day, where she felt kind of like a, a blessing from God or she felt something really good and saw something really good that happened to her. A sign that life is good, a sign that she is loved, a sign that she's important and cared for. Find three a day and bring them back to me a week later, which she did. And uh, she was able to find three a day, and her mood had had changed dramatically. She's now starting to see the blessings. Then you can count those blessings, right? So the same is true in our marriages. Let's show more gratitude to each other. It's just one idea, but write a thank you note to your spouse. Thank them for helping you. Talk about it. Thank them for everything that they they do and, and give you every day. Keep a gratitude journal where you write down the three things every day that are your blessings. Start counting those blessings. Tell everybody every day about your blessings. Talk positively about people behind their back. Talk so positively about your spouse to someone else that, uh, you know, and, and then see if that positivity ever makes it back to your spouse. How cool is that when, you know, you go to church or you're hanging out with somebody and all of a sudden they're saying, oh, yeah, your wife was telling me what a great job you did on whatever. It lifts everybody. Gratitude. Let's infuse our marriages and all of our relationships with a little more gratitude. Is it just positivity? Kind of, but it's also reality. A lot of the things going on in your world are very, very positive. And the more we emphasize them, the more uh, they may grow. Just my thought. We'll continue the journey. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Hey, uh, you know what we like to do is revisit some of our past interviews, and one of our great contributors on the show is Dr. Brian Willoughby. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University and uh, is an expert in you know uh, many marriage and relationship issues. A few months back, Dr. Willoughby joined us on the show and talked about marriage arguments and the effects on their children, and we wanted to revisit a bit of that interview. We began the interview talking about why arguing in front of our children is such a big deal. Yeah. More. If you don't fight in front of your kids, that's actually a problem, is which it really? is counterintuitive. Yeah. Like you said, we think we don't want our kids to think we fight. We, right. want, we want our kids to think we have this great, perfect marriage. And, and actually, the kids that grow up never seeing their parents fight, they struggle a lot when they're young adults in their relationships. No, is it because they don't? it's a concept that they don't even think happens? Yeah, it's it's partially that, and it's mostly, though, because they don't know how to resolve conflict, huh. because everyone has conflict, even if yeah. you don't see your parents fight. Even the healthiest have, couples Yeah, even the healthiest have couples have conflict. In fact, the couples that don't have conflict tend to have some underlying issues There's they're not dealing <laughs> they're with. They're hiding something. <laughs> yeah. um, and so if I never saw my parents fight, that's my primary model for what a relationship is supposed to be like. Hmm. I'm looking at my parents and, and saying, that's what I'm supposed to be doing as a husband, as a wife, as a spouse in general, if I never saw them resolve conflict, I get in my own committed relationships as a young adult, and I don't know how to resolve them anymore because I never saw that happen. You don't see that in movies yeah, either. No, you don't see no. that in TV. You don't see that in the media. And so all of a sudden, one, I don't have those skills to resolve conflict, and two, I have a lot of anxiety about it. Wait a minute. My parents never fought, or at yeah. least I think they never and now fought. now we're fighting. Now we're fighting. I must have a bad relationship. It's so that is so counterintuitive, and, and then you can almost see that parents might say, "Well, okay, so we're having tension. Let's just talk about that in the bedroom." Right. But mm-hmm. so you really, we don't want to take it necessarily offline every time. No, you no. need to address it. Yeah, and then that doesn't mean sit your kids down and watch them. Yeah. You know, have them here goes watch mom you. and dad. Here we go. Round <laughs> go at one. each other. And obviously, <laughs> certain topics you probably want to keep private, but but that doesn't mean that they can't know that. Hey, you know. There might have been a little tension yesterday, but yeah. we want you to know that me and mom, me and your mom sat down. We talked about it and we resolved it. That is so. That's it's isn't that that's so counterintuitive. Oh yeah. Well, and the thing too is that we think the kids can't pick up. Yeah, on oh, attention, kids don't. Kids, but don't they know. do all they, the time, and so they think, well, they they don't. As long as we keep it in the bedroom, we don't fight in front of them, yeah. that they're not going to notice. But they do notice. And one of the reasons they notice is because when you're mad at someone, even if you're not talking to them about it, you're still showing them through yeah. nonverbal language, That's right. through all these other things that you're doing, being passive aggressive, et cetera. And the kids are n- now learning that. Interesting. And I mean, kids know too. I had somebody just recently say, oh, yeah, my mom's so passive aggressive. Mm-hmm. And that was a 16-year-old girl. Yeah. And I'm like, where did you learn those terms? Oh, yeah. it's 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 huge. In fact, I spent... A lot of the last month, listening to interviews of a uh, hundred young adults just talking about marriage and relationships, and one of the questions we ask them is, "What influenced you? How you think about relationships?" And, and time and time again, the first thing that usually comes up is mom and dad. And what a lot of them are saying has been very fascinating. A lot of them grew up; their parents are still together, have been married for twenty, thirty, forty years, but they're still saying, "You know what? I never want to get married." Because I saw how miserable my parents were. Uh, they didn't fight. Yeah. They, they weren't physical. There wasn't abuse. But I could tell my mom hated her life. That's what they think. Interesting. It, she was never happy or my dad was never happy. There was always this tension. Why would I ever want to be in that kind of relationship? Yeah. And, and they attribute it to marriage when mm-hmm. it could just be tension. It could right. just be life. It could be family. It yep. could be kids. It could be your parents are ailing. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's depressing. It is. It is. <laughs> I mean, it's such a – but you sit there and do this all day long. I mean, it's – is there is that why a lot of these millennials aren't choosing to marriage? Do you, marry? Do you think it's a part of it? Yeah, the the it feeds into this mentality that marriage is a trap. Yeah, that it's something that's going to make my life worse, not better. And again, they they rely a lot on on parents. Is there that's their primary example of what at least for most of them, sure, what marriage is like. And they're looking at their parents, they're looking at their mom and dad, and saying, "Is that what I want?" For my life, is that yeah. the kind of relationship that I want? So, if we have if if we have this tension, this the relationship's not feeling positive as a couple. What I mean, I'm sure there's more harmful ways to handle conflict, mm-hmm. and there's probably less harmful ways. Right. But it seems like the typical is like you were saying. This some of us just withdraw from it. We just walk away, like blah 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 blah, right. pretend like that's not happening. And some want to engage it. What what are what are kind of what are the harmful ways? What are the less harmful ways? What are the healthy ways we right. should have conflict when we're around our kids? Right. Well, we can start with the the harmful ways because that's what most of us do. Yeah, that's what we're a good lot at. of the times. You know, obviously there there's kind of the far extreme where you've got physical violence, emotional violence, yeah. verbal abuse. That's not a good thing for kids to see. That's it's not a good thing chart. for any kind of family dynamic. Um, but there's there's more subtle ways that conflict can be unhealthy too. You know, back to the passive aggressive thing is if 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 we tend to put a cold shoulder towards our, our partner and we tend to kind of shun and not interact with them yeah. and kind of try to show them we're upset with them by by not communicating or not engaging with them. Um, that's that's a really strong negative thing that kids will pick up on. Oh mm. mom's mad at dad yeah. dad's mad at mom and now look we're not you know <laughs> we're not sitting down and talking anymore dad didn't come to dinner tonight or, yeah. or they're not coming you know and that, that tends to spill over then to how we interact in our, our family time with our kids well see some people say that now oh, that's so much healthier than yelling not it's, necessarily it's dysfunctional just on the other side right. of the spectrum right exactly um and then there's things like Interrupting is a huge thing. I uh. talk to my students all a lot about that is when one parent interrupts the other one because that, that, that signifies power in the relationship. When I interrupt you, I'm telling you through my community, through the interrupting, yeah. that I don't think what you say matters. Interesting. Um, and so kids will pick up on little subtle communication things like that, like interrupting, um, being defensive, um, kind of attacking and blaming our partner, all the, all these kind of fighting things that we tend to do a lot, kids pick up on those It's intensity too. I mean, I've yeah. just seen with a lot of my clients that some just have learned if I bring intensity, mm-hmm. you can't handle it. Right. So I will just blow your, right. uh, what are they called? Your circuits. I'll mm-hmm. bro- blow the circuit breakers yeah. in you and this will be done. Right. I'm going to flood you with as uh-huh. much intensity as I can. And, and it can just be quiet, down. shaking yeah. and, and again, steaming. Yeah, going back to what I said, that's when kids will start picking up. Okay, so dad, let's say dad does that. Yeah. Right. And mom kind of sits back and dad usually gets his way. The kids are sitting back and saying, you know, especially if you look at a, a daughter, mm-hmm. you know, where mom's that kind of primary female role model. She's looking at mom saying, wow, wow. Well, I don't want that to happen yeah. to me. I don't want to have to be in a relationship where I have to sit back and take that. And we start generalizing. I think, okay, even though that's just one Marriage, mm-hmm. I start thinking. Well, that's that's what marriage is like. Well, that's a, that was an interesting benefit. I grew up. My parents divorced when I was eight, mm-hmm. so I grew up kind of always assuming I didn't have a good example, mm-hmm. even though I th- I had good examples of parents, but I didn't have a good example of a relationship. So I was always looking. 
So I'd go to every friend's house and I'd watch their parents. Yeah. I was like the creepy Townsend kid that <laughs> – why is he always watching us? But I, I, I mean I gained a lot of information about different styles and I saw some parents touching a lot more and I could mm-hmm. tell some never did. But it's – that's the deal. We have usually one role model, if any, right. not 10. And mm-hmm. it's almost like we need 10. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh... – my, I know my advisor in graduate school um, was really big on what he called marriage mentors, which is kind of yeah. the same idea. He, I love he, he that had this idea. whole idea of, you know, we need to get a lot of mentors in our life, a lot of good marriages. And, and we actually have done a couple of research projects with really low income families um, that have no models yeah. at all. You know, yeah. their parents divorced or were never married to begin with in, in most cases. And let's find some stable marriage. People who have been married for 40, 50 years, yeah. and let's just put them together with these young couples, young parents, and and let them have that good example of you can make it. You can it's do possible. this. I think that's really cool. And it almost seems like a role that like a church would play, mm-hmm. kind of like a pastor and his wife could yeah. go be great mentors. Yeah. You got to almost have a relationship. You almost can't. Bring in a social worker right. and her husband. Here we go. Yeah. You know yeah. I mean? You need to see real stories uh-huh. and, and real people that have struggled, that are open with their struggles uh-huh. too, back to the conflict um, thing. It's, it's, it's powerful to see a healthy, stable couple that's open with, we struggled and we did fight and we did have conflict, but we got through it. That's really the, – the mentor idea is huge, isn't mm-hmm. it? And it's something, too, that maybe I had a couple the other day that's about to get married, and they're like, what would you suggest? And right now I would suggest go find 10 couples. Right. Yeah. And just go start interviewing them. Yeah. Yeah, it's something I do in my class. Do I you do them, that? Yeah, interview someone who's been married at least 20 or 30 years and, and talk have, talk to them about the struggles and how they went through it. And, that's such And a... try to open their eyes a little bit because, again, really yeah. newlyweds. They get in this mindset of, <laughs> as soon as we fight, the marriage is over. It's over. No, it's I remember over. that. My first fight, I'm like, so divorce me. Yep. And my yep. wife, her head spun around. True yep. story. All the way around. And she talked like this. <laughs> and she said, don't ever say that word again. Right. Dunk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Welcome back, friends. You know, um, love ain't easy. It ain't easy. But it is important that we find a way to to make it work and to to stick in in the relationship, to stay in until it is working. So we'll continue to give you the latest and greatest, the insights you need to love stronger and to lead healthier, happier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know those millennials. They're just so lazy. As I look at Ben yawning through the middle of my show. They're not lazy, folks. They've, they've We're misunderstood. Misunderstood, totally. Yep. And they were basically like monsters created to fell. That's what I was thinking, too. So let me give you some other coaching tools. And this isn't just for millennials. This would be for some some ideas for how you can coach other people when they bring you their problem. Right? Because it's easy. You know, you may have a friend that constantly comes and brings you all of their issues. And you need to fix this for me. Um but if you're going to coach people, and this would work great with millennials, you know, in coaching them on their own uh, issues as well, 
But um, I'm going to give you just five basic keys, okay, as we go through this coaching corner. Uh, the first key is to know that the answers, any answer, or I call them a hook, a hook might be something that keeps somebody stuck. All of their answers, all of their hooks are in them, not you. So when somebody comes to ask me a, um, you know, a question, but it's involving them or their life or their uh, experience in the world, when it's about them, the answers are in them, not me. And you got to realize that as a coach. And there's a lot of value to knowing that because if I understand the problems are in them, the issues are in them, then honestly, then I can uh, kind of make it more about them. I also don't have to be offended if they use or take my advice or not. Um, I also can know that if I give a solution that doesn't work, it's because I probably didn't unhook the right issue in them. So I want you to be thinking about somebody that comes up to you, asks you a lot of questions, wants your advice, maybe somebody that doesn't seem to take it a lot, uh, or or the people that maybe are around you wanting insight but don't necessarily ask for it. Know that their issues, their answers are in them. And I'm convinced that uh, that those issues are in them, and I I want them I want them to be responsible for the fact that this is your world. A lot of times I'll ask somebody a question, and they're like, "I don't know, I don't know the answer to that." Well, you must. I don't know is your fast answer that you're just telling me as a coach, but you're the only person that knows why you do what you do, right? I mean, I can guess why you do it, I can surmise, but. You're the one with all of the information. You're the one with all the data. So make sure when you coach somebody that the answers are inside of them, even if it's just coaching them to kick a ball in a goal. And if, if they have the inability to do it, then that hook is stopping them, but that hook is inside of them. And the job of a really good coach is to get inside that person and help that person find out what their answers are. Um, one reason that that's important, too, is because in motivation theory, it would say that unless this person uh, – unless the answers are coming from this person, they're less likely to be motivated to actually do anything about it anyway. So turn it back on them and uh, let me show you how we do that. One way to do it is to use questions, right, to turn on some lights. So like, let's say a mother came in and, you know, I don't – my son, we, we were going to move him to a new school. I'm pretty sure it's, I mean, it's an important thing. I'm not sure he's going to like it, but I, I want to move him to this new school. I think it's better for him. And um, they might just right out of the chute say, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know your son. I don't know everything about what's going on here. So be careful to not just jump on that answer. Well, yeah, I would totally move him. I was moved to a new school, and I was his same age, and I turned out great. Um, instead, use some questions, right? So, you know, just use some questions like, you know what? I don't I don't know what to do about moving your son yet, but, you know, it sounds like you're really considering it. Um, but before I answer this, can I ask a few questions? Like, so what are your goals for your son and this situation? And try to help him – by just asking the question, what are your goals, it allows them to have to go evaluate their goals. Or, uh, you know, what what do you perceive the problems might be with moving him to this area? 
to this new school? What does your heart tell you about this decision? What does your mind tell you? You know, and which of those two do you trust more? Which answer do you trust more? Another question you could just simply ask is, why are you asking someone else's advice on this? Why are you not just making the decision yourself? But push on them. Right? Because – and push with questions. And let these questions not be to trap them, not be to beat them up, not even just so you know how to answer this person. Ask the questions so that this person has to explore what they are doing, right? If the, if the issue is in them, then ask the questions that help them explore it. The more information we gather here, it's also going to do two things. It's going to give me more data, but it's probably going to lower their emotion about this decision. Anytime somebody brings me a big you know, bundle of emotion, I usually like to get them talking and sharing their feelings about the emotion. So first step, understand their answers and hooks are in them, in them, not me. Second is use questions to turn the lights on. My goal is just to get information. Once I can figure out what their goals are with their son and what's the history of the situation and what are they feeling right now about it and why are you asking me, why aren't you asking someone else and what does your gut tell you, a lot of those might – They might just answer it themselves, right? Another thing I like to do is as they're talking is I reflect back what I hear them saying. I'll reflect back. So it sounds like you really like to have your child try another school, but you're afraid he'll lose friends if he goes to the new school. Is that what you're saying? And I just hold it up back to what they were to them so that they have to look at what they're saying. And the way I do that is I just basically paraphrase what they just told me. And then I say, so is that what you're saying? And then they have to agree or disagree. Well, yeah, that's – well, and it's it's not just like that. I also – I don't want to feel like I'm too demanding that I'm pushing my son this way. Now, the more they talk, I love it because the more information it gives me about them, but it also allows me to maybe look a little bit deeper at what their motives are, what's driving them, what their concerns are. If this mother, for example, keeps saying, I just don't want to – Make the decision for him. I just I want I I don't want to make a mistake, and I feel like I might be pushing him too hard. But then I'd go talk more about that. Man, it sounds like you feel like you're applying a lot of pressure about this decision. Tell me more about that, and then let them explore that issue. Does that make sense? So as they're sharing their issues, the issue is usually never the real issue we're discussing. This isn't about school. This is about this mother's concern about her son. She's concerned and she wants to make a change for her son. And she's also concerned that the change will create other problems like he will lose his friends or she's just being too demanding. So if you hold it up, don't agree with it, don't disagree with it, don't argue it. I don't even give other advice. I just say – I just kind of let them kind of sift through what they're thinking about. And by not taking a position, then they don't have to like, you know, retract into their position and then we don't have to debate about it. Keep it very open so we can keep this issue moving until we find out what's going on. Then another rule I like to use is I point out their inconsistencies. So it sounds like you're worried about your son and, you know, and his grades and yet you also don't want to feel like you're making the decision for your son. Is that what you're is that what you're feeling? This that's a little bit of an inconsistency, right? You want him to move on and you're concerned it's not a great idea. 
point out the inconsistencies. What I find many times, it's the inconsistencies in our thinking that come out in a conversation. And if we can hold it up, not call them on it. Oh, it sounds like this is what's really going on. You don't need to be the pop psychologist. Just I'm noticing that you you really feel like you're pushing your kid too hard. And you also really feel strongly that he needs to move on. Talk to me about that. And then if I can get them to be honest a little bit more about the inconsistency, that's where I see a lot of truth come out when I'm coaching couples, when I'm working with people. Um, it's it's pretty interesting stuff. And so point out those inconsistencies. And then last and certainly not least, be cautious about giving advice, right? Be cautious about giving advice. And one reason I say that is because um, people take your advice, right? So if you give advice, people are going to take it. It's one of the weirdest things I learned being a, kind of a radio TV personality is people actually take your advice. Be super careful offering it. The other reason I want you to be super careful offering advice is because um, they also need people to blame. So if they don't like your advice or if your advice backfires, you're the one that gave it. So they will hold you accountable to it, right? Five basic, easy coaching steps. Know your answers and hooks are in the people you're talking to, not you. Use questions to turn on some lights. Reflect back what you hear them saying. Point out their inconsistencies, cautiously, of course. And be careful giving advice, folks. Be careful. I've seen people advise uh, a divorce because their friend gave them that advice. Be careful the advice you give anybody, um, especially if you haven't done the other steps before it. Stick with us, folks, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we love our kids to death. We want to be the best parents we can be. We keep hearing more and more stories and research and media about, you know, what what the perfect parents are all doing. And then we get this complex that we're not going to be perfect at it. And so uh, why not find out if we can't be perfect, let's just be exceptional. Let's be as good as we can possibly be. And uh, why not uh, study that? In his book, Simple Habits of Exceptional But Not Perfect Parents, uh, author Ken Dolan Del Vecchio um, talks about how we can be the best that we can be. And uh, he's here today to, to help us um, uh, kind of sort through some of this, this stuff. Ken Dolan Del Vecchio, are you there, my friend? with you, Matt. Good to be with you. Thanks for being here. I mean, it really is this idea. We, we're we're really we want to be the best parents we can be. Do, do you think we worry too much about the perfection side of it? I think the people who worry about being perfect are probably the most conscientious parents there are, and so they should give themselves a break. It's the people who don't worry about yeah. it, who I'm more concerned about. That's right. The one where it's not even on the radar, that, that might be the one that we need, to, we need to try to reach out to. Right. Talk about um, your book, Simple Habits of Exceptional, Not Perfect Parents. Um, 
I mean, exceptional. That's that really we we can we can be the exception. We can be the difference um, and, and be the best we can be, and that's probably good enough. Absolutely. All of our parents do the best they can, and we come out deeply flawed and deeply functional. And it's just important to recognize that's the human condition. And if we try to do the best we can, then that's, that's all that one can ask. And, and I wrote this book because a couple of my clients told me to. Huh. And in particular, I was working with a family who had an 18-year-old son who was in his first year of college. And he was having lots of struggles. He was having trouble fitting in, and he was having trouble doing his coursework. And he came home for Thanksgiving break, and he told his parents that he was, he was having this difficulty and that he thought he was going to take the next semester off, maybe do some work, and see if he could pull himself together some and decide what he really wanted to do. And they got in touch with me because they took this as signs of catastrophic mental illness. Hmm. And through our conversations, I was very direct with them. And I told them basically that their child's life at that age, more so than even when he was younger, belongs to him. And it was very important for them to listen and to be supportive, to give ideas when they were asked to, but not to try to seize control. And it's in that very direct and simple kind of guidance, they found that very useful. And, and they, among others, said, you need to write this down. And as I'm a person who, who writes a lot, that, that now became something that I had to get out of my head and onto the page. And there well, came the book. That's, that's, it's really powerful. In fact, you can hear in that there's, that there's that power struggle that we have as parents where we we are used to having the control and the power over the child um, to influence, to guide, to direct. But really, it seems like your book addresses th- this this need to to manage the power differently. Well, if we look at power, and I believe that power is the is the platform on which all relationships are built. And if we look at the power in our relationships, we can essentially understand it in two ways. We can understand it as power over, which is the right to control, the right to dominate, the right to tell what to do. And that's actually the expression of power that we see most in our world. But the alternative, and it's the exceptional choice, is power with. And power with is when we understand power as the awesome responsibility to generate shared health, success, all good things for the people who love and respect us or who we are responsible for in whatever organization we may be a leader in. And so that's the goal for parents, to understand that your job is, is not to direct, it's not to own, it's to, it's to facilitate carefully, thoughtfully the development of this human being into the adult that they need to become. That adds... And it seems like with that paradigm, a completely different responsibility and, and approach that we should be. I mean, it adds a seriousness to it. Where, I mean, this isn't an, this isn't a game that ends. This isn't something that you just have a baby and they're gone when you're 18. Your job is to, like you said, facilitate, to empower, and to to guide this child into their life. 
through the rest of their lives. Yeah. Our, our job, the way I see it, is twofold. It's to provide love in a way that is helping the child develop their full potential, their life skills, and it's to realize that we will forever be a guiding role model. And we want to be a role model for how to craft an adventurous, healthy, fulfilling life. Some of us, some of us become negative role models, mm-hmm. and we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. But I'll give you an example of, of power with, if I may. Yeah. So we, we know that kids don't know anything. Our kids don't know anything when they're little. That's why they need to stay with us for so many years. And when, for example, I've seen kids getting a haircut, little children, and they're screaming at the <laughs> top of their lungs, and it, it's just insufferable. And, and I always think, you know, this is a place where we, we need to be thoughtful and caring right from the beginning. We need to understand that this can be scary, and we need to take our child when we get our haircut and sit him on our lap and say, Hey, look at what's happening. Mommy or daddy is getting their hair cut. It's really fun. Look in the mirror and see how it's done. And aren't I beautiful? Mm. And all that kind of stuff. And so they get the feeling that this is positive. This is okay. Same kind of thing in the dentist's office. I don't know about you, but oh. I used to take my son yeah. to the dentist. And then the next room, there'd be a kid screaming and yelling. And at some point, the parent might become a disciplinarian, or they might have ceded all power and just let <laughs> the let the tantrum go and run its course. And the, the exceptional course is to anticipate, it's to understand that kids don't misbehave, they behave. And we need to shape their behavior from the from the very beginning. And we need to be mindful of who they are, where they are developmentally, what their what their fears and their and their desires are. And, and, and be proactive, like really think ahead with those kinds of circumstances. Yeah. No, that's great. That's such great advice. I mean, I have six kids, Ken. So when we go wow. to the dentist, it's like the Townsends have moved in. And, and really, the entire staff is paying attention to somebody in my family. Um, but I, I get that idea, too, that there's so much you can just model – Instead of just all of a sudden surprising them on it uh, with something, we could be modeling it along the way. You also bring up in your book the importance of teaching, you know, people that our children to to become kind of critical thinkers that can can actually formulate or or create or gain their own their own perspectives. Talk about that. How do you how do you generate a you know a, a critically thinking child? Well, let me first say, Matt, that this is so important in our day and age because I feel like there's so much that we need to evaluate for ourselves and and talk through with people who we love and respect. Uh, I'll tell you a very quick story. I was driving. I used to drive a long distance between my home in Massachusetts and my office in Newark, New Jersey. And Mm -hmm. often I would listen to talk radio shows like yours. And I was listening to a show political show. It was before the election. And the host was talking to a a man who had called in. And the guy who called in said, I listened to one outlet, one media outlet, and I don't agree with what they have to say. And I listened to another one, and I don't agree with what they have to say either. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. And the host said, well, I guess you're going to have to weigh what you hear and come to your own place, your own perspective. Can you do that? 
and there was a substantial pause, and the guy said no. Mm. And I have to tell you, I feel like that is, there's a lot of that these days. I feel like people have put aside the capacity to think for ourselves, and it, it's, it's a skill that gives us confidence. It makes us feel competent in the world, and it's really simple to help your kid do this. You just, right from the time that, that they are small, you ask their opinion on things. You talk about your values and the ways that you think about things, and you, you talk with them about the shows that you see on TV. So as your child is growing up, they might, for example, notice the commercials that are everywhere, and they might notice the commercials for medication. And you can ask them, what do you think about that, mm. that they're advertising medication? Mom and dad tend to think that you should get medication that a doctor prescribes. What do you think? And just asking those questions. And when you look at a, a show like The Voice, let's say, yeah. you can ask questions like, what are the values that are being taught here? And you can talk about competition. You can talk about skill that is evaluated without looking at the person's appearance. You can talk about the relative value or the way that, that collaboration balances raw competition. And when you do that, you're helping your kid understand that their thoughts are valuable. Their ideas are valuable. They don't have to, they don't have to just listen to this news station or that one. I don't even think they're news stations anymore. I think they're more a little bit of inf information and a lot of just bickering and loud arguing. Yeah. And I, I think that, that we need to empower our kids to, to value what they think. Mm. And, and I think that that's I think that that's simple, but often overlooked because we don't do it our, enough ourselves. Many adults don't. Another thing we can do is read. We can read on the things that are current that are challenging. So, for example, the opioid crisis yeah. is, is on everybody's minds these days. And there's all these little articles about it, but there are also great books about it. So so there's a book by a guy named Johan Harry. It's called. Chasing the Scream, the First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. And it is, it's a compelling read. It talks about the history of, of where we've been as a society in terms of temperance, in terms of prohibition, the thinking that's changed over time across history. And when, you, when you're informed with that kind of depth, it can really help it can help shape the way you understand the world. And again, if we read and we look at things in, in depth, our kids are watching. Mm. And then creating those questions. I, like I love how many questions you were asking. A lot of times with our kids, we're not asking them their opinion. We're not asking them the questions. We are just talking. We're, we, we think yes. parenting is talking, teaching them, yeah. laying it out. Yeah. When sometimes it, a better parenting moment is – you know, looking at something, watching, like you were saying, a commercial, and then ask a question. Absolutely. And, and, and to tell our kids, one of the chapters I have in the book is Better Than Lecturing. And I have found that it's a very good tool to tell, instead of to tell your kids what they're doing wrong and what they ought to do, to tell them your own experiences. So I have one son. He's now 25. He's the light of my life. And 
when he was little, his mom and I noted that he was really, he was really tense about grades. He was really worried about making A's. And, and he's, he's a very smart guy, and he was doing fine. And we started telling him, we said, when we were in school, both of us were, were the same way. We were really anxious about doing our best. And, and over time, we got some C's, we got some D's. I told him that I got some F's, uh-huh. and, and, and I survived. And I went to college, and I did well, and I've, I've got a great life. And, and that, that really helped him to relax. And in some ways, we felt like it helped him to relax a bit too much. But, <laughs> Darn it. But, Shouldn't have but, told him so many stories. Say, and yeah. then later on, I told him stories like, hey, when I was in college freshman year, I was with a bunch of the guys in the dorm, and I drank too much, and I smoked too much, and I was sitting on my, my friend's bed, and we were talking with a group of people, and I just vomited all over the place. Ooh. And, and then, and then I, this is when he was like 16, 17, because we knew that he was experimenting. Yeah. And, and then a short time later, he had gone to, he was visiting colleges, mostly with us, but he went to visit a college with a friend of his who we knew well, and that guy was a, a freshman already, and Eric was exploring schools. And he came back, and uh, we asked him how it was, and he came back and said, you know, I just drank too much. I didn't get sick, but it was really bad, and I'm going to watch out and be more careful next time. You know, he knew that we're not perfect. He knew that I had done things like that. It gave him permission to talk about the the challenges and the foibles that he had faced. He yeah. kids need to know that we're human and that we can listen to the the problems they have, the troubles they get into. That sort of thing. and relate to them, and and again, and then you talk about values and and teach them your other values and your principles. You also, we only have about a minute left, but talk about how you how you also teach spirituality in parenting. Well, I think spirituality is the core of health. I think it's the core of who we are, and I believe that we need to expose our kids to nature. We need to teach them about where we are. In, in communion with the natural world. I think that gardening and walking through, through the woods is great. I also think we need to teach them values. And, and I'll tell you a very quick story, if I may. Yeah. When I was moving from my, the last home before I moved here, there, was this, there, was these, there were these two trees that, were, that had lost a couple of huge branches. And I met with the arborist, and he said, look, you can tie them together with a chain, or the, the safest thing to do would be to cut them down. And I said, look, calm down. And there was great, there was significant expense at that. And the na- my neighbor, his name was Joe, a little while later, later came over, and Eric was with me and said, you know, that was really generous of you. That was a, a, quite a gift, and we won't forget it. And just my kid knowing that, that generosity, that kindness is essential in this life and that we're all connected is, is, is something that I think is really important for us to convey through example and also through what we say. Oh, so true. So true. Ken, we appreciate it. Uh, interesting, interesting insights, I think, for all of us as parents. Uh, getting the values in, uh, understanding that spirituality is a, a core of health, uh, core principle of health as well. Ken Dolan Del Vecchio, 
is the author of the book Simple Habits of Exceptional But Not Perfect Parents and and allowing our stories of imperfection um, to be taught and to be shared with our kids so that they they can see that, you know, mom and dad weren't these perfect specimens either. They didn't do everything right. They make mistakes, and yet uh, we all get through it. So we will continue uh, to, to learn these parenting lessons as we go. That is one of the goals of the show, is to help us all pick up our parenting game a bit. We'll take a break, come back, do a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. So we don't need to be perfect parents. We can be exceptional parents. Um, one of the things we might want to be focusing on when it comes to our little kidlets is uh, how do you want them to be as adults? What what would be your goal? Is 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 it something as simple as just functional? Is, is that all you're looking for from your kids is just a functional child maybe, one that can, you know, not get in trouble, one that, I don't know, can can be healthy? What is it you want? Because if we don't know what we kind of see in their future and want for their future, then how do we decide how to raise our kids every day? I wonder if sometimes we are not giving them enough um enough leeway. We're not giving them enough power to just be their own parent. There was a, an interesting um, legisl- some interesting legislation passed in Utah this, uh, this last legislative session where now parents are allowed to let their children, uh, you know, free-range kids, where they're allowed to now—they can walk places. They won't get in trouble as parents for letting their kids do things like walk to a park or or kind of do things that, you know, in other states you might be seen as neglectful, which, you know, some of that is just saying, hey, we got to let our kids grow up. And some of it is just pushing back at the status quo of a lot of uh, micromanaging of parents. But this idea that we could let our kids go a little bit more, maybe let them walk to the uh, the store by themselves, maybe babysit themselves or sit with them uh, themselves or their or their little brother or sister babysit a little earlier than we we dare to today. It might actually raise some healthier kids. I, I put together some ideas for how to make sure you're raising strong kids, not scaredy cats. Here's one of them. One of the points is simply quit talking about how dangerous the world is. We do live in a day and an age where your kids are healthier than they've ever been. They're, uh, they're generally overall uh, more likely to succeed than ever. They're more likely to probably be able to uh, not have infections and diseases and disorders. They're more likely to get medical care than ever before. They're more likely to be protected and safe and not abducted or even abused than any other time in the history of mankind. And yet all we talk about are terrorism reports and beheadings and all of these other problems. So if we're going to be honest with our kids, we probably also ought to be talking with them about how safe the world really is overall. Instead of making everything so dangerous, another thing you could do is empower your kids to do all the things that they can do, right? If they can carry their plate to the sink, let them carry it to the sink. If they can wash their plate, let them wash their plate. If they can start the, the 
the washer or the dryer, if they can fold clothes, let's let them do it. Even at a young age, let's let our kids do what they can. How about letting your children order their own food when you go to a restaurant? How about letting your children go ask the the um, the uh, the server to for more ketchup or whatever? Let your children do what they can so that we can allow them to to kind of overcome some of these fears. What about rewarding risk? What about valuing and appreciating failure? And like we were learning earlier from uh, Ken Dolan Del Vecchio, what if you could actually share more of your failures in life? I'm not a big believer that you ought to share your ugliest secrets. Uh, Ken was talking about how he was sharing with his kids about drinking um, and being sick because of drinking. I mean, I guess it depends on your value system, but I personally don't think there's some things that your kids need to know. But they should know about your failures. They should know about uh, – I tell a story about when I was – what was I, a third grader and made fun of a girl on the way to school because she had a funny name and uh, how bad I actually felt because of it. And I went to the principal's office because of it. And I remember feeling so, so bad. But teaching my kids about that, I've taught them about my grades weren't great either. But allowing failure to be a part of our lives and actually rewarding our children for their willingness to risk to do things, you know, risk to try something really hard. And it might be worth um, a, a little reward, however you reward your children. Another example, simply to practice more problem solving and conflict resolution. Help them uh, practice these skills. Help them figure out the best way to resolve their own issues instead of coming in and immediately disciplining them. What if we sat down and mediated their conversation if they were a little bit older and can handle it? Let's talk this stuff through. Let's also ask them a lot more questions, a lot of questions. These kids need to – and don't let them give you the answer, I don't know. I get that in my office all of the time. So what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know. What do you want to what do you want to do, you know, when you have your free time? I don't know. Well, of course you know. You're the only one that knows. No, I really don't know. Okay, then what if we just have you do dishes every day that you get home after school? Well, I don't want to do that. Okay, see? So you do know. You know what you don't want to do. And if you know what you don't want to do, then you you probably have some idea of what you do want to do. So Let's just expect more from our kids, but not necessarily more performance and more grades, but just more uh, ingenuity, more um, creativity. Let's expect more conversation, more interaction. And amazingly, when you do it, uh, they'll tend to deliver, which is so powerful. And then all of a sudden, you got these strong kids. Powerful stuff, folks. We're so blessed to have them, aren't we? These wonderful kids, and yet uh, it's not easy, yet... It's the greatest value any of us will ever have. We will uh, continue the journey, folks. Again, doing what we can. Just a little advice. You don't have to take it. You can uh, just keep doing it another way. Whatever's working and getting the results you need, that's what we're hoping to give you. More tools, more ideas. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Dr. Brian Willoughby is an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University, and he's one of our contributors we have on regularly. And we like to revisit some of his interviews to just keep giving you more and more ideas for how to handle life and deal with things. Last time he was on, or a while ago, we talked about marriage arguments and the effects that they have on children. And uh, we're going to continue that discussion now. And we're going to ask, uh, in, in this this section, we're going to be talking about beneficial ways in which we can actually disagree. Yeah, which isn't the case at all. As I always tell my students, there's there's a difference between conflict and conflict resolution. Yeah. And every couple has conflict. It's about how you resolve the conflict that matters. That's huge. Um, I, I actually think one of the biggest things here, it seems like a really small thing, but I think it's huge. It's humor. Yeah. It's it's not letting, because one of the things that happens when we have conflict and disagreements as, as a spouse is we get a lot of emotion, a lot yeah. of negative emotion, and we let it build. Uh-huh. And, and that's when all the, the negative stuff tends to happen. And so if we can bring humor in, now when I say humor, I don't mean like cynical, sarcastic comments towards your spouse, (laughs) but just laughing about things Mm -hmm. and and, and keeping things light, that's a huge thing, especially if kids are around and they're hearing us have a disagreement. If we kind of joke with each other, um, that's huge. We do that. Like, so do you hate me? I'll go say, I'll go ask my wife, so do you hate me now? And she's like, yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's a joke and- it breaks the ice. Right. And then you can kind of address, no, I'm just mad because you. Yeah. And it sends a really powerful message to kids that we just disagreed and we had a little conflict, yeah. a little argument, but it's not a big deal at all. No one's going to die here. Yeah. Because kids might in- inherently go to divorce. If their right. friends' parents are divorcing, they might be thinking, oh, man, yeah. my parents are going to divorce. And the other powerful message it sends is that we disagreed, but I still like you. Because yeah. if we have humor, there's this uh, assumption that we still are playful and like that's each true. other. That's a pretty powerful message. No, that's huge. Yeah. And that could be humor. That could be even affection still turning to- towards each other, the turns mm-hmm. and the bids towards each other. Right, yeah. Um, I think another really powerful thing in terms of modeling things for kids is as parents, a lot of times we're pretty good at coming up with systems for parenting, you know, yeah. your chore charts. Right. And we sit down as a family, we have a family meeting and say, okay, here's, we we want to work on bedtime or we want to work on cleaning your room. And, and we try to model, okay, here's ki- here kids, here's how you do that. Yeah. We don't do that as much for marriage, even though a lot of us in our marriage sometimes right. will have little things. We'll sit down and say, we need to work on our relationship. Let's try this. Yeah. But our kids never know that it's happening. And it's okay to let them in on some of those things. Right. Like, you don't have to let them in on, you know, hey, mom and I are having some disagreements about sexual frequency. Right. Well, I just want to let you guys know. <laughs> I didn't want to bring it up. Yeah. It's your mother. Um, yeah. But, you know, let them, I was actually thinking about this this morning. My wife and I. One of the things that that we came up with a while ago is, you know what, let's let's try to come up with one nice, unexpected thing that we do for each other every day. Cool. Um, and we started doing that. And I was just thinking about because we've I was mentioning to you before we've been on vacation. Yeah. It's like I should start doing that again today. Um, but that's a great thing to do. My kids know right. that my wife and I are doing that. That I should let them know that. And yeah. it's not necessarily about a disagreement, but it helps them know that we're working on our relationship. Constantly. Or even even just going on a walk, just. Mom and I are going to go – we've got to go talk something out on a walk. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Stephen Covey used to get on a little um, scooter, trail bike kind of thing. And he and his wife, his wife would get on back and they would go talk. Mm-hmm. So anytime they needed a talk, yeah, they're, they're like, we're going on the trail bike. And everyone in the family kind of knew, yeah. okay. Yeah. And again, that's great with Work topics that maybe you don't feel yeah. comfortable talking about in front of your kids. Again, just letting them yeah. know that, that – 
you know, hey, we're going to go discuss this or we had a discussion and cool. or we need to go on a walk. You know, whatever right. it is for you, it doesn't matter how you do it. But letting the kids know that there is a disagreement. Stuff's happening. We're you talking. talked about it and everything's fine. Now. Cool. And when you can, just do it in front of them. Yeah, exactly. And another thing I'll add to doing it in front of them, another huge thing here is validation. Mm. Validating your partner, which basically means telling them that you value their opinion, that you care about what they think and how they're thinking and how they feel. Letting your kids see that, that even though you disagree about whatever it is, that you still value what That's they're huge. saying. That's a huge thing. Just because you can so inval- quickly invalidate by being negative or talking over them and right. that after years of that, they may yeah. feel like there is no value. Right. And that in particular teaches kids another really important thing that even transcends relationships, I think. It lets them show that you can still care about someone that you disagree with. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, I think, so many people in this world that feel like there's only two options. We either disagree and hate yeah. each other. yeah. Or we completely agree and we love each other. That's right. And it's, it's the world's not like that. Uh-uh. The, one of the top marriage interaction scholars out there, John Gottman, has come up with this idea of unresolvable conflict. He said every couple has at least a few topics that, that they will never agree That's on. That's right, ever. Different values, different beliefs, whatever it is, they'll never agree on. And, and that's okay, he yeah. says, as long as we are willing to still validate and support and love each other. And I think it's powerful for kids to see that. So you know what? I completely disagree with you. Yeah. And I don't think I'm ever going to agree with you, but I value your your opinion and I value yeah. you as a person and we can disagree and that's okay. I've seen people that, that have that, the, the thing they're just going to disagree on, but they have to kind of operationalize it and mm-hmm. decide. And they just say, okay, grab a quarter and they'll just flip a coin. Today we're doing it. <laughs> right. Tomorrow yeah. we're not. We're going to let – because we can't solve it any other way. But part of it is, I guess, teaching your kids this, huh? having mm-hmm. these conversations and the tension in front of them and then showing them resolution and then showing them that you're back together. Right. That you've yeah. survived and nobody died. Yeah. That the, that tension doesn't carry over. It's huge. That it's not an unresolved, long-term negative thing in yeah. this relationship or in this family that we just move on. What would you say as we wrap it up, Bri? What's the what would be the number one thing when it comes to conflict um, that that we as parents might want to remember, or that the kids need to learn from uh, us? Right. I, I'm going to go back to the the and the, again. This seems so counterintuitive. The yeah. number one thing is kids need to learn that conflict's okay. It's good that we don't hide it. That's that's probably the biggest problem I see couples do is they try to hide their conflict. Yeah. They hide their disagreements. And then, like I said, kids either grow up on one side, seeing their parents have oh, tension, yeah, yeah. and that has that negative role model that we talked about, or they grow up with this idea that marriages don't have conflict, at least the good marriages yeah. don't have conflict, and that's uh. problematic. That's Dr. Brian Willoughby right here uh, from Brigham Young University. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life, and you can get more information on his website, drbrianwilloughby.com. Now, as it's coming up upon us uh, Easter weekend, a lot of candy is going to be purchased, a lot of chocolate, a lot of chocolate bunnies. Yes, yes. And whatever you do, don't try to steal the chocolate bunnies. There are many people that would love to have a chocolate bunny but you need to pay for it. Pay and if for you your get, bunny. If you get caught trying to steal a chocolate bunny like this woman in uh, Myrtle Beach, Florida, don't crumple it up, throw it back in the store, and then say, are we good Ugh. when you're confronted? Bunnies do not deserve to be crumpled. People. People. Bunnies are people too. 
That's what I've been saying for years. Choc- chocolate bunnies, they're not actually people, but they're edible for people. So as we wrap up this uh, second hour of the Matt Townsend Show, remember, bunnies are gifts from heaven, covered in chocolate, and then consumed by the loving children. They don't need to be harmed by... You don't start biting their ears off and then their little bunny legs. Actually, I think you start with the ears. But you don't crumple them up and throw them on the floor. No, yeah. Respect your chocolate. You you lovingly chomp them before you swallow them. Ear by ear. Mm -hmm. Then take off their tail, then their legs, and then work your way to their head. That doesn't sound right. Treat your chocolate with respect. A a, a little message brought to you by the Matt Townsend Show. Lovers of chocolate bunnies everywhere. We'll continue the journey. Stick with us. Rubber Ducky, you're the one. You make shower time so much fun. Rubber Ducky, I'm terribly fond of you. I do t- <laughs> oh, oh, Cole. Oh, it's just you. Come on, Jeff, get a move on. The show's starting. What? What are you talking about? What show? You know, Screen Cleaning's 20th episode, doing the special Alfred Hitchcock-themed one. Oh, oh you're right, right. Okay, let me uh, let me just grab a towel and I'll be right out. Well, haven't you heard, Jeff? There are no clean towels. That is my nightmare. Getting out of the shower and there's no towel or, you know, trying to go to the bathroom and there's no toilet paper. Whew. That was scary. It's a real-life horror movie. (laughs) Well, Cole, just as you tease, we're doing our 20th episode here of Screen Cleaning. Last time, we on our 10th show, we did the we highlighted the career of Christopher, Christopher Nolan. Nolan, right? Today, we're going to be highlighting the career of Alfred Hitchcock. It's almost like we planned these things. Yes, and when we return, we're going to be speaking with the BYU professor. I sat down with her, and we had a wonderful interview. We're going to share some of our favorite Alfred Hitchcock films and kind of what Alfred Hitchcock would look like as a filmmaker if he were still alive. That's straight ahead here on Screen Cleaning. It's time for a 90-second movie review for the film Happy Death Day on BYU Radio. Happy Death Day features the premise of repeating a day over and over again, like Groundhog Day. This time, the main character, Tree Geldman, played by Jessica Roth, has to solve her own murder. When she gets killed, she wakes up again, at the same time, on the same day. So it's actually more like Edge of Tomorrow. Well, yes, this premise is getting old, but there have been some good movies made with it. Unfortunately, now they all seem to be teen horror films. And that's what I was expecting going into this film, but I got something a little better out of it. There was more comedy in the script than I expected. Instead of a heavy-handed killer film, this was more of a solve-the-crime story, which was a little refreshing. There are some obvious jump scares and the crazy background music telling you to watch out, but it was just different enough to be a little entertaining. This film was fun at times, but again, only at times. The filmmakers tried to overcome the repetitive nature of the plot with little tricks, but it still felt too repetitive. It did seem right, though, that the main character would freak out at some point just from having to repeat everything. This film earns its PG-13 rating from the violence that is almost ever-present and the intensity of some of the scenes. There is also some drug use as well as drinking and smoking. Profanity is used many times in the film as well as innuendo. A woman is partially nude, but only her back is seen. 
Happy Death Day is getting a C-plus grade from me. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean O'Neill. This has been a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. Screen cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. You know, each 10th show, we highlight the career of filmmakers, actors, musicians. And the last time we discussed Christopher Nolan, we had a great discussion. We broke down some of his films. Cole and I had very different opinions on uh, his best films. We've selected Alfred Hitchcock this time as the filmmaker that we want to highlight. And many people consider him to be the master of suspense. And today we have Professor Kimball Jensen, a professor of media arts at a Brigham Young at Brigham Young University. And uh, she's also interested in critical race theory, ethnic studies, digital media. I thought this was interesting. She's presented research on cosplay and received the James Weaver Graduate Essay Prize for her article on Harry Potter fandom. Kimball, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I mentioned in the intro that a lot of people consider him to be the master of suspense. And aside from the fact that he did such a great job of leaving so much to the imagination, why else do you think that's an appropriate title for Alfred Hitchcock? Well, I think just the topics that he delved in and a lot of other filmmakers. I mean, there's horror and mystery and thriller, and and he's making films at a time when there's film noir um, sort of in the post-World War II era where there's a lot of interest in things like uh, moral ambiguity, like who's a hero and who's a villain. Right. And then yeah. there's also this um, this interest in things like psychology and the unconscious and, uh, you know, are we responsible for our actions? Um, what are the things that are uh, making us do things? Or what kind of sort of raw emotional uh, connections can we tap into um, in sort of this new and interesting world, this post-World War II world where there's a lot of sort of conventions that were shattered by, you know, years of war and yeah. all that kind of stuff. I think you've touched upon something that really highlights the fact that he's not just considered the master of suspense, but he was a master filmmaker because his films never seemed to be just one thing. You know, it never seemed to be just a scary movie or a suspenseful movie. There's so much emotion, so much humanity in his films that, you know, his films have the ability to bring out a a myriad of emotions from his viewers. And that takes talent. Yeah. So Hitchcock is, yeah, not just the master of suspense or, or, or whatever you want to call him, but he is a master filmmaker. And one, that's because Hitchcock was very conscious of his film practice, if you will. He he was very in tune with, okay, in filmmaking, what are the things that you do to be a good filmmaker? How does film create meaning when you watch it? And Hitchcock has these great interviews, and he because he had such a long career and because um, people liked him so much, he has a lot of interviews where he talks about, you know, this is how film works, right? Yeah. When I, when I cut to different scenes and I put things together, the images coming together create these meanings. Um, that we're going to use in film. Um, And the other idea that uh, Hitchcock really got this huge boost in his reputation when all these uh, very uh, famous French critics um, became very interested in him. him. And so especially a famous uh, French filmmaker, Francois Truffaut, did this whole series of interviews with Hitchcock because Hitchcock was one of his favorites. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're trying to go back and reclaim this idea that filmmaking is an art. Right. Yeah. As a filmmaker, you can be an artist 
and you can have a style, right? And that's kind of this um, idea that we understand very naturally today because it's so common that we understand that filmmakers are artists when that wasn't really a big thing before then. So why is it that you think we're still talking about Alfred Hitchcock today? Because you mentioned that, you know, there was that recent uh, documentary Hitchcock uh, Truffaut, I think was the name of it. Mm -hmm. And then there's another one that if it's not out already, it's coming out that's dedicated entirely to the shower scene (laughs) of the film Psycho. So clearly he's still relevant today. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, just he he's a very skilled and masterful filmmaker. Mm -hmm. He's purposeful in what he does. He understands the filmmaking process and he's able to put things together in a way uh, that connect with individuals both because the stories are compelling, the characters are compelling, and just the visuals of his films are very, very well composed as if you're a painter, right, composing a painting. Uh, Hitchcock treated film in the same way. Um, And Hitchcock was very um, well known for being very meticulous in his planning as well. So Hitchcock would sit down and storyboard out and plan things out very meticulously. And he had a very clear vision and very clear expectations of what he wanted, which made him a great filmmaker, made him demanding as a director. And he was kind of a director-producer as well. He took on a lot of other sort of roles besides just you know, working with his actors. He was very careful, very detail-oriented from picking out the clothes for a lot of his uh, female stars. Yeah. Um, being very specific about the colors um, and the camera angles and all these different things. And there's some sort of film legend, I don't know if that's what you want to call it, but the idea that Hitchcock knew that working with studios, um, the studios were kind of famous for uh, re-editing or cutting down or mm-hmm. trying to f- make you do things that were more in the interest of the studio rather than the director. Sure. And so Hitchcock was uh, known for being very meticulous because, one, he had a very clear vision, but also people have said that he was very meticulous because he wanted to make a film a certain way. And if he planned very carefully, then the studio couldn't re-edit his films any other way than the way that he had already planned. Yeah. You know, you don't have to look very far to see the influence that he has had on the filmmakers of today. A lot of films that will come out will be described as Hitchcockian. You yeah. know, they're they're very <laughs> it would be a film that Alfred Hitchcock would make today. So I thought we could spend a minute or two here talking about uh, filmmakers that you feel like have been influenced by Alfred Hitchcock, by the work of Alfred Hitchcock, or maybe what films are out today that might look like one that Alfred Hitchcock himself would have made. Yeah, I was thinking about this um, this week, and I think probably the last time that I thought, oh, this filmmaker is trying to channel Alfred Hitchcock Okay, is in a lot of the work of M. Night Shyamalan. Yes. I think he definitely is like, I'm trying to channel Alfred Hitchcock, maybe unsuccessfully in certain circumstances. Especially his earlier films. Especially his earlier films. I think if you watch Signs, it is such a Hitchcockian Mm -hmm. film. I mean, there's even elements where, um, you know, there's this scene in Signs where they're trapped in their house and they board up the windows and you can hear things on the outside of the house, but you can't see things. Exactly. And I think that's very Hitchcockian where you can hear, but you can't see. Yeah. Or there's this very uh, ambiguous space about what's happening and we don't know, we don't know what's out there. Yeah. And that's what adds to the fear and the suspense. I think one for me, and you mentioned obviously M. Night Shyamalan is one that a lot of people would associate with Alfred Hitchcock, and that's probably what he's going for. Um, But a film that just came to mind when you were talking about that was a film uh, 
by a gentleman that usually wouldn't necessarily be associated with Alfred Hitchcock, and it's uh, Frank Darabont, who directed the film The Mist. Oh, yeah. Which is interesting because on the surface, it seems like it's just kind of a creature feature. But the real terror from that movie, and there are scenes where, you know, this mist has overtaken this town and you have this group of people that's trapped in this grocery store. And you really can't see a whole lot of this creature that is terrorizing this town in this mist. What's really terrorizing is what's going on inside the grocery store as people start to turn on each other and as religious zealots start to convert people to their cause and their way of thinking. Really kind of creepy. Um, so that would be a film I would think would be typical of, of Alfred Hitchcock. Something like that, again, where things are left to the imagination or what people are capable of doing maybe is more terrifying than what a monster could do to you. Right. You know? I think Hitchcock would definitely agree that people are far more frightening than monsters. Yeah. Because it's the the uh, the the id, I guess, the unknown of what people are capable of. And that's definitely a Hitchcockian sort of idea. Yeah. I would also kind of go out on a little bit of a limb and say that uh, the Coen brothers definitely yeah, have a Hitchcock feel to some of their films. And I think part of that is... While Hitchcock is known as the master of suspense, Hitchcock is also has these this uh, pantheon of very quirky and weird characters and these elements of dark humor that run throughout his films. And I think the Coen brothers have a similar, maybe amped up a little bit. Oh, yeah. But this pantheon of quirky, strange characters in these uh, dark humor situations where, yeah, people are sort of unknown quantities and... And we're not sure what people are capable of, and but there's this um, kind of strangeness to yeah. a lot of the things that feels very Hitchcock. Interesting thing about the Coen brothers, too, is they've, they themselves have kind of created this new genre where now people are comparing their types of films to the Coen brothers, the work yeah. of the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, one other film I would mention is kind of a recent one. I thought it was a terrific film. And again, so much of it is left to the imagination. Did you see the film 10 Cloverfield Lane? No, I did not. You need to see that. That's a <laughs> film that a lot of people compared to the works of, of Alfred Hitchcock because, again, it keeps you guessing this whole time. You have these three characters. That's it. These three characters that are in this bunker and this girl is blacked out in a car accident. And all she knows is that the person that brought her down there is her savior. He keeps saying, I saved you. You know, the world is ending up there, and the only place that's safe is down here in this bunker. So you're wondering the whole time, is this guy a creep, or is he really the savior that he is professing himself to be? So films like that that are in such tight spaces keep you guessing the whole time, wondering what people's true motives are, are really what makes some of Alfred Hitchcock's greatest films so great. Uh, one thing I thought we could do now is to each pick a film and just go a little deeper into it, just kind of dissect it, whether it's by, you know, the costumes or the story or the visuals, the music. And it doesn't necessarily have to be one of our favorite Alfred Hitchcock films. In fact, the one I wanted to talk a little bit more about is not one of my favorite Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> films. But I'll let you start. I was actually going to talk about Vertigo, 
which is an excellent film. I don't know if it's one of my favorites. Okay. But it is a lot of people's favorites. And there are some amazing both psychological, uh, visual, story, character things that are happening in there. But there's also some like kind of creepy things happening in there that make me feel a little unsettled when I watch it. So it might not be quite my favorite. Creepy in a different way that I don't like. Uh, (laughs) So Vertigo is really interesting because it's coming closer to the end of Hitchcock's career. It's um, in the 50s. And of course, Jimmy Stewart, who Hitchcock really loved to work with. Um, And Vertigo is like such this interesting story because there's this like quasi ghost possession sure. uh, storyline with the with the heroine and then you find out that it's all like this ruse spoiler alert um <laughs> but just the i think the crafting of vertigo is probably one of hitchcock's finest um you've also got a lot of experimentation in terms of visuals um the color is very very interesting you've got um these reds and greens that are pulling throughout the film. Uh, you've got that very interesting beginning. You've got the great music that's going on. I mean, I think the music adds, um, I don't know, 110% to oh, sure. Vertigo because that's, it's so memorable. Yeah. Uh, of all of the Alfred Hitchcock films, that the Vertigo, the Vertigo album is one of two Alfred Hitchcock albums that I have. Yeah. Or I should say Bernard Herrmann. Bernard Herrmann. Yeah. Who, Bernard Herrmann, who's a master of music. Absolutely. And it's both got the tense uh, suspense theme and then the very romantic theme for the heroine in that film. Mm-hmm. And they're both really, really great musical pieces. Um, and I think everyone focuses on sort of the first, I don't know if it's the first two thirds of the movie, where you've got the mystery and Jimmy Stewart is following um, the character who thinks she's Carlotta, this dead woman. Um, and then you've got, you know, the great iconic uh, bell tower in the Spanish mission, which is amazing. You've got the the walk through the Redwood Forest and the really amazing scene that, you know, everybody always references where she touches the tree uh, outline and says, I was born here and I died here, and which, which is so haunting and great. Yeah. And the acting is amazing in that film. Uh, but I think sometimes we forget about the aftermath is that, you know, Jimmy Stewart kind of has a mental breakdown. And we always forget about that part. Sure. Jimmy's has this mental breakdown. He's got to be recuperated. Um, he's got this really strange relationship with his friend, who's this um, artist, um, that she's in love with him, but he's and not in really love with her. And you really feel for her. And you really yeah. feel for her. She's a very sympathetic character. And then you've got the part that is very creepy to me, which is when Stuart finds this woman on the street and decides to remake her. Absolutely. Into... Uh, the woman of his dreams who really is a dream because she doesn't actually exist. Right. And then the the weird twist on that is that that's essentially what Hitchcock does with a lot of his uh, female leads is Hitchcock actually takes them and literally remakes them into the sort of like idealized, blonde, notorious sort of Hitchcock yeah. character. So it's like there's a weird, creepy layering of... Jimmy Stewart's character is remaking this woman who actually turns out to be the actual woman he's in love with. So there's all kinds of weird (laughs) things going on there. But the idea that Jimmy Stewart is going through this process that Hitchcock literally does with almost all of his heroines. Yeah. Which is just kind of weird and unsettling at all kinds of levels. (laughs) So, But it's a great film. mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And just – and so tragic at the end. So I have a couple of comments as well on Vertigo, but we'll come back to that because, spoiler alert, it's on my list of top five. (laughs) Uh, But the film I want to talk about is The Wrong Man. I just watched this yesterday and – I, I will say 
I, I want to give this film credit because one thing it does really well is it tells a true story pretty accurately as far as I understand, and it really focuses more on the visuals than anything else, in my opinion, and trying to just tell a true-to-life story, so much so that Alfred Hitchcock doesn't do his typical cameo that he makes in most mm-hmm. of his other films, but uh, there's a little bit of a, uh, a message that he shares at the beginning. This Every word of this story happens exactly as it's presented here, uh, and he's shown in silhouette, so you don't even really see him all that well. But I think for me, this film is kind of a victim of... The mindset of, I have no idea where this film is going, as well as, well, it's not what I was expecting to get from an Alfred Hitchcock movie, which was a little disappointing to me. But one thing I really respect about this film, in addition to just kind of the departure from what he's used to doing, he's trying to tell a story really as close as possible as it was. And I'm I'm sure there's some uh, dramatization in there with characters and, and for story purposes, but it's very much a slice of life. They do a wonderful job of showing the effects of being wrongfully accused of a crime, the aftermath of that, and how it affects you even if you walk away with your freedom. There's psychological damage there. There's mental damage. There could, I mean, there's potentially damage to your career, which is one thing I, I took issue with a little bit because, you know, while he's being, you know, while he's on trial for this, he still has his job as this musician at a night at a nightclub, which I didn't totally buy, but it's probably the truth. Um, but he does a great job of visuals and framing and moving the camera around in a way that really helps you sympathize with the character and, and really get a very clear idea of what that character is feeling. There's a scene when he's in a jail and he's his head is swimming. He does not know what's going on. He's having to ask the cops what just happened. Like, explain to me what this judge just said. And he's put in the cell for the first time, has not been able to say one word to his wife over the phone. And so he is his mind is just swimming. And so the camera is kind of moving around in this circle. Great job on the visuals. Again, a score by Bernard Herman. It seems to be Alfred Hitchcock's go to guy. But I guess for me, it, I, I just I was expecting it to go a certain way and it didn't. It was just here's the story for what it's worth and it didn't really work for me but I have I have uh, high respect for him and why he made the choices he did with this film well we think of it sometimes as a departure because it's not visually the same as a lot of his other films especially we tend to think about sort of the late stuff like sure. uh, Psycho and Vertigo and North by Northwest and those things and they have a little bit of a different visual feel and I, and I think part of that is also camera technology is changing mm-hmm. over time um, as you move through Hitchcock's career. The Wrong Man is really interesting because it does deal with a lot of things that Hitchcock uh, is kind of obsessed with, Is if you want to say it that way, that they appear over and over. And wrongfully being accused is something that happens a lot in his films. And if you think about The Man Who Knew Too Much and North, North by Northwest, um, this idea that there's a system that can work against you. And Hitchcock's sure. idea of the maybe the legal or the police system um, but also socially, there's a lot of that happening in a lot of his films. And then it pairs nicely with one of his really early films, um, which I don't know why the title is escaping me right now, where a woman actually does kill someone and then she gets off free. 
Oh, I can't remember what that is. I want to say it's blackmail. Oh yeah, I, I haven't say seen it's that blackmail. one. Blackmail. Uh, huh. Blackmail's really not a lot of people have seen it because it is one of his early films, and it's this interesting film because it's in the transition between silent and sound film, and so you get like these weird elements that feel like a silent movie in the film, and then you've got elements that feel more like a regular movie. Yeah, um, and it's interesting. It's an early Hitchcock film before he comes to the U.S. It's made in England. Um, the protagonist is a female. Which is a little bit, I mean, he has a few female protagonists, but not a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's interesting because she actually is guilty, and we know that she's guilty. Yeah. And so the suspense is, well, should she be go to prison? And she feels guilty for killing this man, although she kind of justifies it because, well, it's justified because the man was going to rape her. Yeah. So the idea that... She's guilty, but it's self-defense, so she really probably shouldn't get convicted, but the justice system isn't going to understand that. And then right. her boyfriend is this police officer who gets involved in the case and doesn't want her to go to prison either. And so even though she sort of gets off free in the end of the film, you have this kind of like, well, I guess that's good feeling. So it's very complicated. Brings up a lot of discussion points, too. Yeah. Okay, so what I want to do now is I want us to share our top five favorite Alfred Hitchcock movies. And I'll start with my number five. One criticism that I would have of a number of Alfred Hitchcock films is that he doesn't quite stick the ending of the movie. (laughs) And the number five pick for me is – that's certainly true for me in this case. In the end, I chose Strangers on a Train. Which is an excellent film. It is an excellent film. And one thing that I love about this film, which is true, I think, of most of these films, is it has a great villain. Yes. A man, the actor that they chose to portray this villain is just a creepy guy. And it has one of the best premises of an Alfred Hitchcock movie that you can get, this idea of flip-flopping murders. Hey, you and I both have these people we love to get rid of, but just hypothetically, you know, (laughs) what if we were to swap places and you murder the person I uh, want out of the way and I murder the person that – well, you get the point. The the flip-flopping of the murders. And uh, again, great villain. Genius premise, but for me, he doesn't really stick the landing. It's one of those endings that's kind of drawn out longer than it needs to be and kind of this silly chase on a carousel, carousel. that doesn't really work for me. But that's going to be my number five pick is Strangers on a Train, which has been mimicked in other movies. And I feel like I've seen in a lot of TV episodes them taking that premise because there's so many of those you know, procedurals, uh, cop shows, and the solution is to – Oh, the solution was, oh, they did each other's. And I feel like I've seen that a lot. And that's definitely uh, an homage to Hitchcock. Yeah. So I'm going to choose a a Dark Horse number five film that people don't talk about just so that I can talk about it. Um, Also because it's a very – I mean, not that all of Hitchcock's movies aren't rewatchable, but I feel like it is a joy to rewatch The Trouble with Harry. That's what I've wanted to revisit. I've only seen it once many years ago. And so The Trouble with Harry is interesting because it's not a typical Hitchcock film. It didn't do well box office-wise. But I think the part of Hitchcock that I like um, with those quirky characters and that dark humor, I mean, and that's just what the film is all about. So The Trouble with Harry is that he's dead and a bunch of different people think that they killed him. (laughs) <laughs> and people aren't really sure who actually killed him. Yeah. So there's these hilarious sequences where the bar- body gets buried and reburied and unearthed and several times. Um, and you've got this whole uh, collection of very interesting characters. You've got this 
uh, artist living in this random rural community in Vermont, this woman who's moved there with her son to sort of escape her past. You've got this retired sea captain, I believe. is He's a sea captain. <laughs> and you've got this lonely old lady. Um, and then the sort of competent but not entirely trustworthy sheriff who's trying to solve this case. And so it's sort of like this comedy of darkness of uncovering and recovering this body. Yeah. But then there's also like these interesting romantic pairings that happen in the film um, that just make it very fun. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to go back and watch and that. It's a be- it's a gorgeous film because it's a film, I think, on location in Vermont. And so it's very beautiful. Oh, yeah. Okay. So my number four, there, I mean, there are several Alfred Hitchcock films that are kind of the the bottle, you know, movie where it all takes place in one location and I've only seen this movie once, but it had such an impact on me that I put it as my number four. And it's Dial M for Murder. It's I think I believe it's based on a play, and it really does just take place in this apartment, and that's it. And it's this this gentleman who finds out that his wife is being unfaithful to him, and he would like her out of the way. And I, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's some money involved. Like he stands to gain her inheritance if if she dies. So he hires this man to off her, and let's just say, like any other Alfred Hitchcock movie, it does not go does according not to plan. Go well. And so there's this uh, this police detective that's trying to solve this mystery the whole time. What I love about this film, again, the villain. He is very charming. He has this he has this smile on his face throughout the movie. <laughs> And he looks eerily similar to Jimmy Stewart. He's kind of like a British <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. This was a this is a play I would love to go see in the theater. Uh, just such, I mean, you're you're just wondering the whole time. Oh boy, is he gonna is he gonna get away with this? And part of you doesn't mind if he does because he's he's kind of a charming guy. So my number four pick is Spellbound. Really? Yes, I really love Spellbound. It's it's one of my favorites. And um, part of it is because I love the weird dream sequence, of course, the very famous Salvador Dali yeah. dream sequence, which yeah. is amazing. And and Ingrid Bergman is this very interesting character because she's like this not very typical uh, female protagonist. Mm-hmm. She's this uh, psychiatrist. And she has to solve the mystery of, one, who this guy is who shows up um, because nobody knows who he is. Um, he has amnesia. Uh, he might have murdered somebody, but yet she still falls and is, in love with him. Is he going to murder me? Yeah, is he going to murder me? But she still <laughs> falls in love with him, which yeah. is a very Alfred Hitchcock thing to happen. Yeah. Um, and then there's these this great chase scene, right? And the, of course, the film ends trying to go back to the place where the the murder has taken place. Yeah. Um, and the and I forget his name is, but Gregory Peck, who's yes. the hero, who's a great actor. Right, he's convicted of murder, but then it, then she, but then she discovers that he's not, and she has to solve the murder on her own, which is quite interesting. And uh, fun fact: they filmed all the snow lodge stuff in Alta. Yeah, so oh, that's really? nice huh. um, for us here in Utah. Um, but yeah, I just it's a great film. There's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of tension. Um, a lot of twists and turns, which is also very fun. I feel bad because I made the mistake of I watched this recently. Made the mistake of having it on in the background while I was trying to book a hotel on, <laughs> on a website, and so I was. I kept thinking, "What is going on?" Because it does have a lot of strange visuals that, 
I really didn't uh, give it the treatment it deserved. So, I yeah, I regret that. My number three is Vertigo. And the word I would use to describe this film, you already used to describe this film, is haunting. There's something – the first time I saw this, there was just something about this film that made me want to revisit it and that I just could not get out of my mind. And I think that, if done right, can be a very good quality in a film. Which is really interesting because the film itself is about obsession. Exactly. And then there's this interesting obsession that happens with us as we watch the film and want to rewatch it. One of the best scores in a film. In fact, it was used – a portion of the score was used again in the film The Artist. I don't know if you remember that, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a best picture of the year. In a very climactic and uh, gripping scene in that film. And, yeah, I think I I share the same sentiments that you do on this film is the implications of his actions are kind of scary and unsettling. That you have this great actor that everybody loves and can identify with. And if it was a different actor, it probably would be ultra creepy. Exactly. It wouldn't have worked. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why Jimmy Stewart in this role works so well is because after the film, and I think Alfred Hitchcock loved it. He loved it when his audience had this feeling of after the fact, thinking back and saying, hey, wait a minute. What about this? This couldn't have happened. He loved that. And I had that feeling after watching this film of that is the creepiest thing, trying to dress up this woman like a dead woman. And then there's like there's the the uh, discussion of necrophilia, and mm-hmm. it's just really kind of disturbing. <laughs> but uh, great camera shots that a lot of people copy, you know, with the mm-hmm. pan or uh, moving the camera back while zooming in at yeah. the same time. Spielberg does that. A lot of filmmakers do that. Now, my number two uh, – it's oh, it's so good. It's almost my number one, but it's Rear Window, also Jimmy Stewart. Again, a movie that takes place all in one setting in this apartment building. What's great about this film, aside from the various uh, suspenseful scenes, especially toward the end of the film, is Hitchcock essentially tells about a half a dozen different stories without any dialogue. Yes. You get everything you need to know about these various characters without hearing anything they say. Which is so difficult to pull off. I, I think another film that does it really well is uh, Wally. Those first yes. forty-five minutes of the film, <laughs> very difficult uh, to pull off. He does it so well, and of course, Jimmy Stewart, who's just somebody that we can all identify with, considered one of the greatest actors ever. Grace Kelly, who's who's not too difficult on the eyes either. <laughs> I, that's a little shallow, but uh, and she's also a terrific actress. My number one film uh, is Psycho. And I know a lot of people will take issue with the ending of the film. I don't. I think it's actually quite effective that they give you this little bit of a break to kind of take a breather and then give you one of the most disturbing endings of a film I've ever seen that works so effectively with voiceover and with visuals. Um, What I love about this film, like any good scary movie, for me, all of the scary parts in this film – are not the shocking, scary parts that uh, other people are were scared at when they first saw this film that made them jump out of their seats. It's the dialogue. It's the writing. It's the close... It's the psychological impact yes. rather than the, the, yes. the visual violence. The scene where she's escaping and she's imagining... She's not. She doesn't have this power where she's hearing what people are saying about her. 
She's imagining what people are probably saying about her back at home where she's stolen all this money. And then another great scene when she's sitting in Norman Bates's office with him sharing some sandwiches. And as she makes a suggestion to him, maybe, you know, with good intentions that maybe he should put his mother somewhere in an institution, Mm -hmm. he starts to kind of unwind and take offense to that. And you start to get a little glimpse of maybe he's got some issues here. (laughs) And again, plus there's that really ominous bird in the background during that sequence. That's really great. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Yes. And then also, again, very disturbing. He did a lot of things that were unconventional and not really that he was allowed to do at the time because of censorship, but that he somehow got away with anyway, which we could do an entire episode or we could do an an entire entire, interview on this. Yeah, Um, But just very disturbing, this idea of a peeping Tom, which, again, we won't get too much into that. So much can be talked about in this film. And I'm still scared to this day of this film. It's my number one scary movie of all time. Well, Psycho's a really interesting film in that it's made like right at the end of the censorship. I mean, the yeah. censorship had kind of been breaking down for a long time. And Psycho's this really interesting uh, piece for Hitchcock because it is almost straight up pure horror which he wasn't, he which he didn't do before that. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of controversy that he was doing this more horror uh, oriented film, and people were like, "Well, why don't you go back and do those glamorous films like you did before?" And Hitchcock, even though he was older and he could have retired, he wanted to keep pushing those boundaries and keep creating yeah. and thinking, "What else can I do?" Yeah. Right. So my number three is the man who knew too much. Which one? The. 1950s one with Jimmy Stewart. Okay. Um, yes, because it is a remake of an older one that he did when he was in England. I don't know. It's sound. I don't think the older one. It is. is yeah. It's sound. Yeah. Um, and I just love this really interesting dynamic of the family. It is, I think, the only Hitchcock film where really the protagonist isn't just one person. It's the whole family. Yeah. And so I think that's really interesting. And I love this interesting dynamic in the family where... Uh, Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day have to go save their son. And so the stakes are really high, right, because it's their son and you feel for them. Um, And just like it's not mistaken identity, but the fact that people are trying to um, to coerce them. And this is not their world. This world of espionage is totally out of their element because he's a doctor and she's a singer. And and that just right. It's just great because we're thrust into this world that we don't know, which is a great Hitchcock sort of trope um, and trying to navigate this larger-than-life situation. How do you even manage um, in something like this? And they do. It's really interesting because they use what they know to solve this mystery and to actually, like, save someone's life. And and there's, like, this great scene where Doris Day comes into the concert hall and she screams and (laughs) and she throws off the assassin by just screaming and causing a panic in this concert. It was an amazing sequence. I've always wondered why he chose to remake this film. And I wonder if it's just so he could make it more accessible. Maybe. Hmm. Um, He could have wanted another opportunity to work with a great group of actors because there's some amazing actors in there. Maybe he wanted to go to Morocco because that's also exciting. Get a paid vacation. Get a paid vacation. (laughs) Because in later Hitchcock films, I feel like there's a lot more movement. They get to go to more locations. And I think part of that is Hitchcock is well established as a filmmaker. And now that he can, I mean, we know he's the master of doing things in one room. I mean, you talk about rope. Yeah. Um, But the idea that now he gets to use these interesting locations because he's got the budget and the power to do so, which is is amazing. And I love it. And I also love that it's like such an interesting concept that to save the son at the end 
sorry, spoiler alert, that uh, Doris Day has to sing, which is like such a different kind of solution yeah. to a problem. And yeah. I thought that was really, interesting. really interesting that she has to sing to save her son. Yeah. My number two is also Rear Window. Yes. <laughs> I think Rear Window is just amazing on so many levels. Um and it's this idea that we, along with Jimmy Stewart, are sort of immobilized, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of being powerless yes. in a situation that really requires us to have some more movement in our lives. The use of our legs. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and so it's really, I just love this, like, well, we are powerless. And even though we're in this powerless position, what can we do? Mm-hmm. And plus, I love sort of the play on voyeurism, which is such a... A more common thing now that we think about is voyeurism and surveillance and watching. Again, if it wasn't Jimmy Stewart, we'd probably be creeped out. Like, who is this creepy guy watching his neighbors? Yeah. But then again, how many of us look out the window and, like, watch our neighbors? Like, we do that all the time. Let's be honest. People watching is what we call. We don't call it peeping Tom. We're not people. It's it's people watching, right? Yeah. Um, And there's such great tension in Ruendo, too, because of the helplessness, right? When Grace Kelly goes over to the apartment and is looking for things, right? There's just, like, so much tension because you, like, can't do anything. Again, you don't hear any of that sound because yeah. it's all from his perspective. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. so it's good. Am- it's amazing. Yes. And the falling out of the window at mm-hmm. the end is amazing, right? And the irony of breaking his other leg, which is yes. fantastic. <laughs> um, and then my number one is North by Northwest. Yeah. I am a huge Cary Grant fan, so that also is part of it. And Cary Grant did lots of films with Alfred Hitchcock. And I think it's really interesting because Cary Grant was kind of interested in retiring before he even did To Catch a Thief with Hitchcock, which was a couple years before North by Northwest. And I'm so glad that he didn't retire because I think North by Northwest is Cary Grant's best film and Alfred Hitchcock's best film. Wow. Um, there's so many amazing scenes in North by Northwest um, and the film itself is well executed but just there's so many memorable iconic mm-hmm. amazing and then once again Albert Hitchcock using locations locations are almost another character in North by Northwest um, from the train there's so much interesting things happening on trains in North by Northwest yeah but also the there's this amazing sequence um, uh, when he goes to this big house Right. And they're interrogating him. And then he goes back to the house and, oh, we don't know what's happening. This house has been closed for how many months? And so there's like this great, interesting use of sets and locations. And, of course, the famous scene where he's like driving and almost falling off the cliff, which is an amazing yes. sequence to film. Um, and then, of course, there's the iconic stuff at the end where um, there's the shooting scene inside of the visitor center and uh, – uh, Mount Rushmore where they go. And of course, mm-hmm. the iconic scene at the end where they're racing across Mount Rushmore. I mean, it doesn't get any with better Martin than... Martin Landau? Yes, with Martin Landau as a villain who's an amazing villain in this film. But just mistaken identity, lots of twists and turns, um, the crop duster scene. I mean, that That's, is, yeah, so, that is so one iconic. of the best scenes. But I, I absolutely love the idea of, well, what would it be like to have a chase scene on Mount Rushmore? And I just think that is... Um, like an amazing idea, one and two, like incredibly well executed, and adds so much to the typical chase scene. Yeah, in a film. 
Well, Kimball, we've really appreciated your time here. We've, I've had a great time speaking with you about the career of Alfred Hitchcock. And again, this is something that people teach courses on. This is something that people will spend people two hours. People devoted their whole careers to studying yes. Hitchcock. And as we shared, people will make a documentary based on one scene of one of his films. <laughs> so it's crazy. There's a reason why people are still talking about him today. People are still making movies about him, and people are still very heavily influenced by him. I wish that some of the horror and suspense movies of today would borrow a little bit more from him because they do tend to go a little bit more for the quick buck and the cheap thrill of the jump scares and all that. But uh, if you want a good scare, just go back and watch the good old films of Alfred Hitchcock. And there are so many that we could have talked about that we didn't. You need a good scare that stays with you. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's a great way to put it. And if you've, uh, if you've seen your favorites over and over, then maybe try to discover a new one. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome to Twisted Tales, stories of the macabre inspired by actual events. Today's Twisted Tale is entitled Eight-Legged Fear. Mary Abbotton let out a terrified scream when she noticed a tarantula the size of her hand crawling up her foot. In a panic, she called an RSPCA inspector, only to discover later the hairy arachnid was made of plastic. Pacified, she breathed easy again, only to be scared out of her skin by a loud knock at the door. Alarmed at the mysterious late-night visitor, she reluctantly inched her way toward the front door, only to remember her call to the RSPCA. Regaining her composure, she opened the door, only to discover it was not an inspector from the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, but a representative from the other RSPCA, the Royal Society of Public Certified Accountants. Your capital account is insolvent. Fearing for her life, she slammed the door shut, frantically turned the lock, and ran toward her bedroom, only to trip over a sharp object. Upon further inspection, she saw that it was just her son's Lego set. She sat there, relieved, only to remember she didn't have a son. Her ear-piercing screams led to tears of terror. She reached for her box of Kleenex, only to discover the box was empty. She rushed to the lavatory, hoping some toilet paper could act as a suitable substitute, only to discover the TP was one ply. Reeling in horror, she threw herself into the bathtub, only to discover a tarantula, the size of her hand crawling up her foot. Join us next time for another terrifying edition of Twisted Tales. (laughs) Excuse me. Coming up. 
up here in just about four minutes. It's BYU Sports Nation. Stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss it. Before we get to that, though, I did want to give Cole an opportunity. Since we've been talking about Alfred Hitchcock on the show, I had an opportunity to share my top five of his movies and so did our guest. And now I wanted to hear what Cole's top five Hitchcock films are. I think I'm going to bring a couple more movies to the plate. So okay. we've heard five, three different top five lists. Okay. Um, start at five, work to one, right? So mm-hmm. I have to include The Birds you in have my to. top five list. Okay. Because it, just, it has absolutely no dialogue. I watched it for the first time when I was in ninth grade and just the the script is not good. It's a cheesy <laughs> 60s movie. And it, to think that Alfred Hitchcock did this after so many really, really great movies is really weird. But it's just a fun horror movie. And it's got some good practical effects. And It's revered the by birds, a lot of people. It's fun. I, he did more serious things. And those are higher up on my list. But... I like watching the birds. Okay, so what's number what's number four? Right. The f- four is an earlier one. It's Notorious. Okay, um, I have not seen that it's one. It's a spy drama with mm-hmm. Harry Grant, so definitely Hitchcock-y. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three for me is Rear Window. Yes. Which is very good. Number yes. two is North by Northwest. Okay. And then number one is definitely Psycho. You got it right, Cole. Ding, 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 ding. You got the last one right for sure. That's the important one. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I We could spend hours just talking about the one film. And in the interview, we mentioned that there are people that make films about specific scenes from the film Psycho. Mm-hmm. So plenty to uh, chew up there and digest. Ugh. I did it again. I brought up food. I promised I wouldn't. I'm going to go home and lay down. But, you know, you probably don't care about that. So go out and have a great weekend and eat something that won't upset your tummy. And... Uh, <laughs> We hope to see, we hope to hear you back once again here next weekend. That's it for today.